0: It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Volunteering after retirement has been shown to benefit your physical and mental health in addition to helping your community. Still, the number of retirement age adults who volunteer has dropped to only about 26% over the last couple of years. That's according to the consulting firm AgeWave. So, what would it take to get more of this potential volunteer pool of 70 million people to volunteer? Our next guest is a philanthropy expert with us for a look at the benefits of getting involved and what we could do to make volunteering more accessible and appealing for seniors. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you are retired, do you volunteer or have you done it in the past? Where do you offer your time, talent, skills? How did you get involved initially? And if you are in an organization that relies on volunteers, make a pitch for maybe retirees to give it a shot. Join in at 800-642-1234, that's 800-642-1234, or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Lisa Dietlin is a keynote speaker, author, and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. Lisa, welcome back to Central Time.
1: Oh, happy to be here, Rob.
0: Now, I don't know how scientific these numbers are on the percentage of retirees volunteering. Some anecdotes and some data out there suggest that's going down. Do you have thoughts on why that might be?
1: Uh, Yes, I absolutely do. And it is a concern in our field. I think the number one reason is COVID. Obviously, when COVID happened, a lot of organizations had to think about how were they going to engage with volunteers? And I think those people that are retired We generally think they're a little bit older, and I think there became a fear about their health and their safety. Even though nonprofits took measures to make sure that volunteering, once they figured out how to do it (laughs) safely, um, that that could occur, I think there's still that mindset, that leftover, maybe we call it the hangover effect of COVID, of am I going to be safe, and I kind of got out of the habit.
0: I wanted to bring up that last point. there, getting out of the habit with this disruption where very understandable why volunteer programs would come to a halt (laughs) there. And then once maybe that new uh, cohort of people didn't start right after retirement, once people, you know, dropped out of whatever, maybe a weekly routine or something like that, maybe they just didn't get back into it.
1: I, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think because also volunteering can be that you know the study showed that um volunteering in groups or with a buddy or a friend or a neighbor makes you more likely to volunteer to show up. So when we were all isolated, I think we forgot how to do that again, Rob. I think we forgot how to come back. And so for instance, I volunteer at the Greater Chicago Food Depository and one thing that I've learned because I bring those um, individuals who run that program into my class that I teach, they said they had to really reshift their thinking because they were always based on a corporate model. They would go into companies in Chicago, you think Boeing's or Walgreens or you know any of the big corporations here, and they would ask for volunteers and they would come. They had never gone to the singular individual level. And I think many nonprofits mirrored that and they're still struggling with how do we get to that person who re- retired maybe early because of COVID maybe during COVID maybe after COVID and is feeling a little anxious we don't have the system in place to reach them and yet we need them so much to be able to fulfill our mission
0: can you mention uh talk about a little bit about the uh the benefits of volunteering especially after we retire
1: oh the benefits are just tremendous. First of all, is that social aspect, is that gregariousness, it's putting you out into community. So it alleviates depression, anxiety, it relieve alleviates, you know, um, what do we call that? You know, sittings the new smoking, you know. <laughs> I, I read a study where it said, you know, the average retiree watches 47 hours of television. You have to sit down <laughs> to watch a lot of that TV. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, I love my streaming programs, but um, it makes us be less sedentary. You know, we're up and we're moving. Generally, like when I'm at the food bank, you know, I'm up and I'm packing boxes or I'm you know, repackaging um, boxes of apples or whatever happens to be the project for the day. So I think it helps with your mental health to alleviate, you know, perhaps depression or isolation. It helps with your anxiety. If you're feeling anxious about this new act of your life, your last chapter, your third chapter, whatever we want to call it, the third act. And it also allows you to, um, you know, be physically active. We know that as we age, we tend to become more sedentary and getting out and volunteering helps with that. And that's part of making your health better. And besides volunteering, studies have shown you're just happier and healthier. When you volunteer, your blood pressure comes down, you know, your rate of heart disease, you're just more active.
0: Talking to Lisa Dietlin with the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy, talking about volunteering, especially for retirees. You can join in if you are a volunteer of any age at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Guy is with us in Madison. Guy, hello.
2: Hi. Uh, I just wanted to mention an organization that's uh, nationwide, and statewide, and very active in Madison, it's called Retired and Senior Volunteer Program (RSVP). Uh, they have a wonderful um, uh, staff that uh, lines people up according to their hobbies, interests, talents, and. Uh, do a marvelous job of just matching them with the right uh, volunteer opportunity. And, uh, you know, they can decide on how much or how little, and, and they do a really good job of working on your, your own schedule.
0: Guy, thanks a lot for the recommendation. I've heard of this uh, RSVP, Lisa, that idea of reaching out to an organization that can be uh, basically a matchmaker between uh, volunteers and organizations. Good idea?
1: Absolutely. It's a great idea. And I think Guy, thank Guy um, for that um, sharing that information. RSVP is an amazing organization, as is volunteermatch.org. And many cities have um, local organizations that do that, that act as that filter for volunteering, especially major urban cities. I'm not sure about the rural parts of. Wisconsin, but I definitely know Madison, Milwaukee, some of the bigger cities, Green Bay, would have um, an entity. It could be tied to the county. It could be an independent nonprofit organization, a branch of RSVP that, you know, one stop shopping basically, Rob, that you, you know, put in your application and they will help match you. And I'd love to share, you know, with our listeners that there's different types of volunteering you can do. You know, this term skilled volunteer, have you heard about that, Rob, this idea of taking your skills Mm -hmm. and using them at a nonprofit organization? So if you were a lawyer, you might say, Hey, I could review contracts. If you were an accountant, you could say, Hey, I can help with your audit. If you did graphic design, you could say, Hey, I could help you, you know, design your invitations for your gala, for your golf outing. So, If you have a skill that you do well or did well in your career, and you might be missing it a little bit because, you know, when we retire from something we've done, we might miss it a little bit. Think about turning that around and offering that skill and being a skilled volunteer. That's a category we call a skilled volunteer for a nonprofit.
0: Thanks for that call. We'll go to uh, Margo now in Menominee. Margo, hi.
2: Hi, Rob. Um, I live in a town about 17,000 people, and I'm saying that I, I'm disagreeing with the speaker. That may be what's happening in Chicago, but I think that in my little rural community, my church is back up with its twice-a-year thrift um, sale schedule. Friends of the Library is back up with its twice-a-year book sale schedule. Um, I'm also volunteering for Music Over Monomen which is through Friends of the Library, we're up and running here, Rob.
0: Excellent, Margo. Glad to hear it. Now, Lisa, you weren't saying that nobody is up and running at this point, but uh, the gears might still be turning a little slowly for some organizations.
1: Well, and, and I, love, I love when people challenge me. Margo, <laughs> this is a great conversation to have. I do agree with you that nonprofits are back up and running. My point was that I think some of us who have retired and um, might be a little bit more hesitant as well as the nonprofits still trying to figure out how do they navigate these waters. Absolutely, you are 100% correct that we have figured it out. We are through COVID. Um, We're living with it now. Um, We are figuring out how we engage volunteers. Um, I just think it might be a little slower than it was before COVID began.
0: All right, Margo, good luck with the library sale. Thanks for calling in. We're talking to philanthropy expert Lisa Dietlin about volunteering, especially in retirement. The benefits, why retiree volunteering numbers are a little bit down, how we can get them back up, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you volunteer? Where and why? What do you think you get out of it, if anything? Do you have a volunteer activity you would recommend to other people, maybe to retirees? Are you in an organization that needs volunteers? Tell us about it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our conversation with Lisa Dietlin, author and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. We're talking about the importance of volunteers, especially retiree volunteers, what we can do to make volunteering more accessible and appealing for seniors. And for everybody, you could join in with your volunteer story at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Lisa, I want to talk about the organization side here. Uh, thinking about maybe a small uh, nonprofit or service group that thinks, you know, we'd love to have volunteers. Uh, we don't really have time to train new volunteers to do stuff. Uh, how can an organization like that think about uh, ways they could use volunteers without taking up all their limited staff time just to make it happen?
1: Right, oh that's a great question. You know, um I take a phrase called train the trainer you know, uh, train a volunteer. Ask a couple of people who might be volunteering for you already if they would take a day, an activity, a time frame, and if they would be the lead on it. And then put out a call. You know, we don't know the power of our social media, as well as the people who volunteer. Asking them, can they each bring a friend? And have somebody be in charge of the Monday volunteering, the Tuesday volunteering. Maybe it's the Wednesday morning volunteering, the Wednesday afternoon. But People, especially leaders in non leaders involved, leaders excuse me leaders in corporations who've retired, are looking for something to do and the thought that 's coming to me right now is I have a, a dear friend who got involved with after Hurricane Katrina, and all he wanted to do was answer the phone lines through the American Red Cross, but they figured out pretty quickly that he was a retired CEO and all of a sudden he was in charge of the Thursday night volunteers, and they're still meeting. That group is still meeting and getting together all these years later, Rob, because of the camaraderie they had. So if you're a small organization and you don't have a director of volunteer engagement, you don't have the time to do it, find that person who's showing up and helping you. Perhaps it's a um, a spouse or a partner of one of your staff members who's, you know, retired and maybe driving them crazy at home and they can take over the volunteer. Get creative in thinking about it. I always say in the summer when, uh, you know, our young people come home from college, ask them if they'll take a day or a time or if they'll help organize it. You know, it doesn't have to be all the time that they show up, you know, every day for 365 days or every week for 52 weeks, but maybe they would take a spot in an opportunity.
0: Let's go back to our callers now. Maria is with us in Green Bay. Maria, hi. Hi, how
1: are you?
0: Good. What did you want to bring up, Maria?
1: Yeah, I think this is a great um, topic as I myself work for a nonprofit um, for civic engagement to register new American um naturalized potential voters and uh, but I wanted to talk about my experience as a volunteer as someone that is getting into the workforce I've actually been able to uh, get a job based on all my volunteers so even from college uh, to mid profession to changing a career it all happened thanks to the volunteering that I was doing in that operation and it was all based on um, what we're saying here based on the skills that I had and I was able to volunteer those which later became a job for me.
0: Maria thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Lisa that reminds me you know once upon a time I decided hey maybe I'll try volunteering at a community radio station uh, (laughs) with no intention of that being my career (laughs) and here, here I am. So Maria's not the only one with that experience and we're looking at younger people now where that volunteer thing may lead to some other stuff too.
1: Absolutely. That often happens. I can't tell you that Maria, congratulations. I can't Tell you the number of times i 've heard that exact story and your story, Rob, and I often think too i don 't know about you, Rob, but I had a bunch of friends retire in their early to mid fifties, and all of them all of a sudden we 're turning sixty this year, you know are a little bit bored, so I tell them, go volunteer and and you might find a job um, I have a dear friend who you know got laid off, and she 's been looking for a job, and she 's down in the dumps, and you know that anxiety we were talking about depression. Guess what she does? She goes and works with the animals at the animal shelter. She goes and helps, you know, transport dogs when they're being moved, cats. She takes care of them, works the hospital. She doesn't do it all the time, but I tell you what, it lifts her mood every time and gives her more energy to get back in that job search.
0: Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Talking with Lisa Dietland, philanthropy expert, founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy, talking about volunteering uh retirees in particular but not only retirees still time for you to join in with your volunteer experience at 800-642-1234 that's 800-642-1234 at least something that's been emerging here is uh the variety of volunteer experiences people might you know narrow in on a couple things that they assume volunteers do can you talk about uh, some of just the the wide variety of opportunities out there
1: Oh my gosh, there is everything. It is so wide. It is as wide as the job market is. So, you know, you can do like I do and volunteer at the food bank, and you can repackage food and so that it goes out to people. You can do what my friend does. And we've talked about cats and dogs. You could read to children in a hospital. You could clean up the riverfront in the spring or pick up litter, you know, at different times of the year. There are so many things. If you have a passion about something, you can find a volunteer opportunity. You know, you can go and visit with senior citizens. You could do a talent night for them. You know, those are called like spot volunteers where you drop in and you do your thing and then you leave. Or you could be a regular volunteer that shows up every Tuesday to play games with the children that are hospitalized. You could visit veterans in a veteran center. You could help um, military people that and wives that are struggling, or, or uh, husbands or partners where their spouses and partners have been deployed overseas. You could take on you know childcare or mentoring responsibilities for a nonprofit organization to help an overworked parent. The sky is literally the limit. I think, you know, we hear about the hero flights, the medical flights, taking our World War II veterans and our Korean War veterans to Washington, D.C. That is all volunteers, Rob. That is all volunteers. I mean, yes, there are professional staff that are helping, but so many of the people accompanying and chaperoning those individuals to Washington, D.C. for those flights that we see on the news those are volunteers. So let your imagination run. You know, I'm going to Egypt next year, and I want to go on an archaeological dig. I want to volunteer. And people are, well, maybe not Egypt, but how about Jamestown? And then I realized there's an archaeological dig in southern Illinois. So let your mind go wild.
0: Let's go back to our callers now. Mark is with us in Madison. Mark, hi. No, Mark in Madison. There we go. Mark, hi.
2: Yes. They, uh, um. I got into... Volunteering at the Madison Area Food Pantry Garden. There's several gardens around the area, and our motto is we plant, we grow, we feed. So um, it, it was, uh, I got into it right around COVID, and I could be outside. Great exercise, fresh air, awesome people, and uh, serving a positive purpose. So uh, it's great fun, and, uh, yeah, we, we grow the food and give it to people that need it.
0: Excellent Mark, thanks a lot for sharing that experience with us. Lisa, uh for people, especially for people who like gardening and don't view it as a as a struggle like me, <laughs> that might be a great volunteer opportunity.
1: Oh. Absolutely. I wanted to ask Mark, you know, was he a gardener before? Because, you know, there's those with green thumbs and those with brown thumbs. But I think either way, if you had a green thumb or a brown thumb, doing what Mark's doing is amazing. And you could learn how to grow our own food. You know, we are so far removed from knowing where our food comes from. And I think that's a wonderful way to give back. And as Mark pointed out, He was outdoors, you know, Mm -hmm. felt a little bit safer, um, felt in community with people during COVID. I mean, he's checking all the boxes.
0: Thanks for the call, Mark. Marcus is with us now in Milwaukee. Marcus, hi.
2: Hey, Rob. Um, So I volunteer for Habitat for Humanity uh, Restore because I do remodeling and construction. And so they have me price stuff on the dock. And they're receiving materials as well as I also volunteer at the actual physical sites. And they'll usually assign me some other volunteers because I know how to do drywall and I've, I have a business so I'm able to teach people.
0: And Marcus, working at the ReStore now as a construction person, do you get to just see cool stuff come through like fixtures and things like that?
2: Yeah, and I actually probably end up spending. um since I'm not, being I was going to ask
1: money. that. <laughs> it's pro,
2: it's, pro, it's profitable on their end, so you know it works out well.
0: <laughs> they get you coming coming and going there, Marcus. Thanks a lot for the call. Well, but there's that skilled volunteering there you were talking about, Lisa. Marcus has skills, and he's putting them to use in a, a couple different ways.
1: Absolutely, he is. And you know, that reminds me of a story when my mom retired. Um, she wanted to work at the restore, Marcus, but it was in northern Michigan and they didn't have a place for her. So then they sent her to the church and then they sent her to this place. And my mom goes, No, 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 no. I want to work at the restore, Habitat have have for Humanity to restore. So I would say to those nonprofits listening listen to what your volunteers want to do. They might be willing to help somewhere else for a moment. But if they want to work on the dock like Marcus and they want to price things and teach people drywalling, don't have them doing something they don't want to do because they won't stick around. They might do it once or twice, but listen to what your volunteers want to do.
0: Thanks for that call, Marcus. Lisa, just in our last half a minute or so, I hear again and again about a a great thing in life and particularly after retirement is making sure we have a sense of purpose. How how big a part can volunteering play in that?
1: Oh, it's a huge part of it. You know, I would say to everybody who's listening, uh, you know, to live an amazing life, you have to give back and you don't know the difference you're going to make by that ripple in the pond of your volunteering. So find something that stirs your heart. Grab a friend, grab a neighbor, make a friend while you're volunteering. Realize it adds value to the nonprofit organization. It's a position they don't have to hire and go out and change the world.
0: Lisa, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. That's Lisa Dietland, keynote speaker, author, and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. We talked to her about the decline in retiree volunteers. She gives advice on how to get involved. You can keep sharing your volunteer stories at any age on the Ideas Network Facebook page. I'm Rob Ferrett. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. central time i'm rob barrett wisconsin republicans have called on state supreme court justice janet Protasiewicz to recuse herself from ruling on a lawsuit challenging the state's legislative boundaries they argue that campaign donations she received from the democratic party and comments she made while running for the seat make her an unfair arbiter of the case last week she said she would not recuse herself from the case citing past court rulings and promises to remain neutral on the case Today, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss told reporters that impeachment is not off the table if he feels she injects her own political bias into her ruling.
3: I want to see how she goes through the process. She said she's going to follow the
0: law. The most important aspect of the law is following past precedent. And if we follow past precedent, the laws are constitutional. We've seen two different Supreme Courts find that they are. So let's hope she sticks to her word, which she said in her recusal ruling, that there's no need for her to recuse because
2: she's going to follow the law. We'll see if she does.
0: Foss's latest comments come after he sought the advice of multiple former state Supreme Court justices who told him they do not support an impeachment pursuit at this point. Sets the stage for a political and legal battle over the state's redistricting that could work its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court once again. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you think Justice Protosawich should recuse herself from this case? Why or why not? What do you think of the threat of impeaching her? How do you want to see the state Supreme Court and the state legislature handle this redistricting issue? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Robert Yablon is an associate professor of law and faculty co-director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison. Rob, welcome back to Central Time. Good to be with you. Let's start with this recusal issue. As I mentioned, uh, Republicans have said, well, uh, she received donations from Democrats during the campaign. This even though they're not plaintiffs, this case, this uh, case could benefit them. And she described the maps as rigged over the course of the campaign. When it comes to rules of recusal for state Supreme Court justices, do those rise to that bar? Likely not. Uh, You know, recusal standards come
3: from two main sources. They come from the U.S. Constitution's guarantee of due process, and they come from Wisconsin-specific judicial ethics rules. And uh, as a matter of due process, the U.S. Supreme Court has indicated that hearing a case in which a campaign donor might be interested generally does not require recusal. And likewise, that justices, judicial candidates have a First Amendment right To express their views and opinions on issues, uh, and that there's no due process right to have a judge that's never uh, expressed such views. So, um, you know, this is the kind of conduct that judicial candidates in Wisconsin and elsewhere. Uh, often do engage in. They're often out on the campaign trail uh, talking about their values and opinions. They only go too far if they make explicit promises or commitments. And I think Justice Protasewicz was fairly careful to avoid doing that. Uh, and in this day and age, for better or worse, judicial candidates of all stripes receive hefty sums of money from political parties and other large backers. Uh, and for the most part, that does not require their recusal.
0: As a candidate, uh, now Justice Protasewicz did. I think express herself on issues a little more than most people expect Supreme Court candidates to do so, especially with the comments about the maps being rigged again. She didn't say, therefore, I would rule against these maps or anything like that. I mean, is that hair splitting? Is it reasonable to say if she expressed herself that strongly on these maps, she's at least somewhat prejudged the case? Well you know she I, I think understood that there is a line
3: that the law sets out between expressing views and opinions on the one hand which is permissible and making promises or commitments on the other hand and the guidance that judges typically get is a promise or commitment is something that is quite explicit and overt uh and i think that she generally was um, taking care after she uh, expressed her views to say, "I do just want to be clear that I will follow the law and uh, that you know I take an oath when I put on that robe to you know look past my uh, my opinions so um, i don 't know that what she was doing here i 'm pretty sure that what she was doing here was not different in kind from what you 've seen from other candidates in Wisconsin or elsewhere. I mean her opponent in the election uh, made fairly clear that he believed that redistricting was principally a matter for the legislature, and that is the uh, expression of a legal view on on uh, one of these issues, so uh you know she stayed within um, within the norm again, you know, whether you think that the rules ought to be tighter, that justices should be more circumspect, I mean those are reasonable views to hold, but uh, given the rules that we do have on the books, she seemed to understand them and uh, took care to stay on the right side of them
0: that's standards for recusal. How about standards for impeachment so uh, what technically are we supposed to be looking for? Before we, uh, we being the state legislature in this case, start trying to impeach a state Supreme Court justice.
3: Well, under the Wisconsin Constitution, impeachment is reserved for instances of corrupt conduct in office or crimes and misdemeanors. And that's always been understood to set a quite high bar on the kind of conduct that would be impeachable. And that's consistent with what former Justice Prosser said uh, in his uh, the the guidance that he gave to Speaker Boss uh, and Justice Prosser also himself, a former Republican Mm -hmm. legislative leader. Uh, He said, quote, impeachment is very severe and ought to be very rare. And uh, he said that in his view, corrupt conduct is not the sort of term that's open to a mere political grievance, and that he didn't see any evidence of Justice Protesawitz having engaged in corrupt conduct.
0: Dr. Rob Yablon from the State Democracy Research Initiative and professor of law at UW-Madison, looking at calls for Wisconsin's newest state Supreme Court justice to recuse herself from redistricting case that the court agreed to take up, and threats of impeachment of said justice. You can join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. Let's go to your calls now. Jeff is with us in Superior. Jeff, hi.
2: Hi, good afternoon. This is a good topic for Wisconsin to uh, approach. And being a Wisconsinite who believes in virtue, I think we need to trust our leadership and uh, and, and trust that what they say is what they'll do. I think when it comes to the judicial branch, we have especially, um, you know, to be um, sensitive to uh, their judicial tact because they're interpreting the law. So I'm willing to trust the leadership as long as they demonstrate uh, the ability to be objective.
0: Jeff, thanks a lot for the call. Rob, what do you think? Well, I mean, that's consistent with the
3: presumption that the that the law has long recognized, which is a presumption of impartiality on the part of judges. And it's a reason why recusal typically is rare. Uh, we see it most often in cases where you might have a judge who's related to one of the parties in the case or a party's lawyer or the judge and the, or someone in the judge's family has a direct financial stake in the case. Uh, but again, it's why recusal is not the norm when it comes to campaign statements or the receipt of
0: campaign funds. Thanks for the call, Jeff, at 800-642-1234. Bob is with us in Saukville. Bob, Hi. Are you there, Bob? Okay. I think we've lost Bob. Uh, thanks. So you can try again, Bob, at 800-642-1234. I want to dig into another statement from Speaker uh, Robin Voss uh, at the press conference today saying that uh, legal precedent uh, should be observed. And he was making the case that uh, if Justice Protosewitz is uh, interested in following the law, she should follow legal precedent and therefore past state Supreme Court rulings on these current maps. Uh, stare decisis is the Latin for that, respect for previous rulings. Uh, that isn't always the case, as we saw with the overturning of Roe v. Wade at the National Supreme Court level. Rob, how important is it for uh, the current, currently constituted state Supreme Court to follow precedent set by their uh, predecessor?
3: Well, precedent is considered quite important. Uh, There is a presumption that the justices will follow past rulings. But as you note, it's not absolute. There are examples uh, that that happen with some regularity in the U.S. Supreme Court, for example, where precedent is overturned. There was a high-profile example in North Carolina not that long ago where a recent Supreme Court there Um, invalidated a set of legislative maps as partisan gerrymanders. And shortly after a judicial election, the new court came in and overturned that precedent. So uh, we do see precedents overturned from time to time. But the notion of stare decisis is that there ought to be a, a strong reason for doing it. Now, here, I will note that the legal issues that the court is going to be taking up in this case Are distinct from the legal issues that were addressed in the previous case. The previous case was a case about what uh, had become unlawfully, uh, unequally populated districts in Wisconsin. And and technically, the two issues that the Wisconsin Supreme Court agreed to hear here, uh, they're not even directly partisan gerrymandering issues. One of them concerns whether the current districts that we have are not contiguous, uh, contiguous within the meaning of the Wisconsin Constitution, and the other concerns whether the map that the Wisconsin Supreme Court adopted in the last case violates the separation of powers in the state.
0: I want to talk about that contiguous map issue. So this is going to be part, as you said, of the redistricting case when it comes before the state Supreme Court. Uh, Contiguous meaning all, you know, connected and touching. And yeah, I was paging through some of the assembly maps and a bunch of them have... (laughs) small chunks that are separated from the rest. Some districts you actually have to leave the district to go to the other part of the district. Uh, Contiguous, I think, is one of those basic principles. I think even in the state constitution, how did we end up with some of these disconnected districts?
3: So you're right. Contiguity is a requirement in the Wisconsin Constitution. And so how do we end up with districts that do, uh, throughout the state, have uh, little islands of territory that aren't connected with the remainder of the district? And the answer is that for the past several decades— Contiguity has been interpreted to refer to political contiguity rather than geographic contiguity, which isn't necessarily the most natural reading of the term. But by political contiguity, what we mean is there are islands of territory sometimes that are part of a city or a village but aren't connected geographically to the rest of it. And so the districts will keep those bits of city, those discontiguous bits of city connected with each other in a district, even if there's not a geographical corridor between them.
0: We're talking to UW Madison Law Professor Rob Yablon about threats to impeach State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasewicz after she declined to recuse herself from a case over Wisconsin's legislative district maps. You could join in at 800 642 1234. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has said not moving forward on impeachment now, but not ruling it out in the future, depending on how the court case goes. You can join in with your thoughts, your reactions, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. This is Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Rob Yablon. He's an associate professor of law and faculty co-director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison. With us today to discuss State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protisawitz deciding not to recuse herself from a case in the state's legislative district maps. And Assembly Speaker Robin Voss continuing to keep the option of impeachment open You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Should Republicans in the legislature move to impeach the justice now or after a ruling, if it goes uh, a way that they don't want it to, should the justice recuse herself? What questions do you have? 800-642-1234 is the number. Let's go back to your calls now. Keith is with us in Greendale. Keith, hello.
2: Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I appreciate the calm, level-headed discussion, but I find myself frustrated because I feel like we should be talking about the fact that this is uh, just a naked power grab by the Assembly Republicans uh, who want to subvert the will of the Wisconsin people.
0: Keith, thanks for the call. Uh, Rob, a, a naked power grab if impeachment were to move forward, our caller
3: says. Well, and I I do think that that's part of the reason why former Justice Prosser counseled against it. Uh, You know, he said, for example, that if the legislature were to try to impeach a justice uh, solely, for example, to try to delay a case, that that would be viewed as as unreasonable partisan politics. Uh, It's one of the reasons why impeachment has been so rare, not just in Wisconsin, but around the country. There's only been one impeachment in Wisconsin history. And uh, around the country, I'm aware of only about 14 state Supreme Court judges. Justices that have been impeached ever across the 50 states, uh, you know, covering 200 plus years of history. So uh, it's it's true that, um, you know, it would be uh, quite extraordinary for an impeachment to proceed in, in these sorts of circumstances. And that may be uh, one of the reasons why, ultimately, it seems like uh, lawmakers have stepped back at, at least a little bit from that.
0: Thanks for the call, Keith. Christian joins us now in Milwaukee. Christian, hi. Hello. What did you want to bring up?
2: Uh, Yeah, I was just telling your producer, whoever that was, that, uh, like, we the people, we voted for Janet. And the reason why we voted for her is now the reason why they don't want her in office. I don't think so. That ain't going to fly. I got my plastic pitchfork and I'm ready to protest.
0: (laughs) Thanks for the call, Christian. Uh, Yeah, that is one of the concerns people brought up is that impeaching uh, over this, uh, this reason, Rob would be overturning the will of the voters as represented in that election. That That is, you know, often given as one of the reasons why
3: we don't want recusal rules to be too broad when it comes to things like campaign support or campaign statements. We do have a system of judicial elections, and alongside that comes judicial campaigns. Uh, and we do want to know something about the values and the priorities of the justices we're electing. And so uh, even as we also want them to follow the law, we want to have some understanding uh, that they kind of share uh, our values potentially. And so, uh, so yeah, I think that there is a widespread understanding that it would go too far in terms of recusal to force justices to step aside uh, in big ticket cases uh, precisely, you know, because those were cases that voters might have cared about.
0: Thanks for the call, Christian. Martin joins us now in Ripon. Martin, hi. Uh,
2: hello. I'm enjoying the discussion very much. I just have a further question on the Wisconsin Constitution requirement that the districts be contiguous. You know, when I look at the 47th district of the assembly, which is in the Fitchburg to Madison area, that is such a crazy quilt of disconnected uh, islands all over the place. And it, it just boggles the mind to think that there's some, any justification other than blatant gerrymandering for the way that and many of these other districts are drawn.
0: Martin, thanks for the call. I was paging through district maps earlier, Rob, and I pulled up 47 here and it is probably the poster child for questions about what contiguous means. Uh, Two big chunks, but a lot of little chunks spread out uh, over quite a wide uh, area. Uh, Is that one you focused on yourself at all? So, uh, you know,
3: I think that what, what you're describing is a reality in many parts of the state. Now, uh, it is a reality that is distinct uh, to some extent from questions of gerrymandering, uh, because there is a, a you know, relatively neutral reason why you might do that. And, and that is those pockets of territory are ones that are part of, uh, say, the rest of the city of Madison, even if not physically connected to it. And so there might be reason to try to keep those pockets of territory in a district with the rest uh, of Madison because they have that political subdivision connection. Uh, you know, this this also goes into a whole separate uh, question of, of whether it's reasonable that we have these laws in Wisconsin that allow kind of discontinuous annexation of territory. But that's uh, that's a whole separate question.
0: Thanks a lot for that call, Martin. Uh, Ann joins us now in Campbellsport. Ann,
2: hello. Hello. Um, your question was, should A, which be impeached? And my opinion is no, she should not. That I was so relieved to finally hear an official say out loud that the districts are rigged, because indeed they are and were since 2010. And I think my question to Robin Voss is, why are you so opposed to fair districts? I and, guess that's my comment.
0: And thanks a lot for the call. Rob, uh, the the rigged comment without necessarily saying rigged or not, when it comes to gerrymanders, I think Wisconsin, uh, uh, if you look at any Republican or Democratic gerrymander around the state, Wisconsin's is viewed as a, a pretty partisan uh, map, right?
3: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, there are established measures that social scientists will use to try to quantify gerrymanders, and by those measures, uh, Wisconsin's maps tend to be either the very worst or among the worst in in the whole country. There's uh, no question uh, a a partisan skew, even relative to uh, the political geography of the state, which might itself have a little bit of, of a skew in it, but these maps dramatically amplify that.
0: Thanks for that call. Now, Speaker Voss has commented, Rob, that the U.S. Supreme Court might ultimately have the final word on Wisconsin's maps uh, again, potentially. Uh, is it possible that, okay, the state's uh, liberal majority in the state Supreme Court says uh, you have to redraw the map or no, here's a better map or whatever? And then once again, Wisconsin heads into the federal court system?
3: That is possible. Uh, Most of the issues in this case are state law issues. And on those state law issues, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has the final word. But there are a few federal issues that have already or are likely to sneak their way into the case as well. So one federal issue is the recusal issue. Because what the legislature has argued is that the U.S. Constitution's due process clause requires Justice Protisawitz's recusal. So that is something that the U.S. Supreme Court could take up. I'm not sure that they would have much appetite to take it up, but that is a federal law issue. The other federal law issue that could make its way into the case is is similar to what happened in the last case. Uh, There are requirements under the Voting Rights Act to assure fair representation for communities of color. And it's a fraught area of law, and it's not always easy to Uh, apply it correctly. And so it's possible that an argument could come up as to whether if there is a new map drawn, uh, that that new map is being faithful to the requirements of the Voting Rights Act.
0: Now, an important point here is that uh, under federal law, you know, you can't racially gerrymander, but partisan gerrymander? The courts don't really care about that. The arguments here is Should the Wisconsin state constitution be interpreted to say that a partisan gerrymander can be so far out of whack that, uh, yeah, it is unconstitutional? Is that am I getting that right? Is that uh, part of the argument here? Well, so even that argument is only
3: indirectly presented in this case. That was one of the arguments that the plaintiffs in this case tried to raise squarely and were hoping that the Wisconsin Supreme Court would take on. But when the Wisconsin Supreme Court said that it was going to grant review in the case, they actually limited themselves to the questions that we talked about before, the contiguity question and the separation of powers question. So to the extent that there's a discussion of partisan gerrymandering in this case, it's only likely to come if the court finds that the existing maps are unlawful on one of those other grounds and then needs to draw new maps. And at that point, it may need to give some consideration to uh, whether and to what extent partisan fairness should um, affect how you draw those new maps.
0: Politically, when it comes to impeachment now, Rob, uh, Speaker Voss has uh, has kept that on the table, but looks to be late waiting for a result It doesn't seem like there's necessarily a lot of appetite among Republicans and conservative former justices who release their letters publicly. Uh, Even if Speaker Voss wants to open an impeachment, uh, does it seem guaranteed that he would get that from his caucus?
3: I I mean, hard, hard to know at this point, you know, given the size of the Republican majority in the assembly, uh, they may well have the votes to impeach, which only requires a bare majority. I think it would be a much trickier question uh, whether they would have the votes to convict uh, if there was an impeachment in the Senate. That would require a two thirds majority. The Republicans have exactly two thirds. uh, And I, I think that it might be unlikely that every single one of those Republicans would be on board with convicting her.
0: Rob, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us.
3: Happy to talk to you.
0: That's Rob Yablon, Associate Professor of Law and Faculty Co-Director of the State Democracy Research Initiative at UW-Madison, with us today for a look at the political and legal battles unfolding over threats of impeaching State Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasewicz. Tomorrow in The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, it's a morning food Friday with Midwestern Food. That's tomorrow on The Ideas Net. bought a pumpkin at a farmer's market the other day. Not for the front porch. It's a small baking pumpkin. Will it be soup, pie, or bread? Not sure yet. But it'll probably be just enough for one recipe. Unlike a pumpkin grown in Minnesota that just set a world record at 2,749 pounds. It's a lot of pumpkin. As reported by the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the proud gardener had previously set the record for the biggest North American pumpkin, He grows his giant pumpkins outside, not in an indoor facility. He picks the variety carefully, has a plan for care, feeding, and fertilizer. My question was, how do you transport a pumpkin that weighs more than a ton? I've read up and checked out videos. There's a long answer. The short answer is very carefully with the right lifting equipment and a big trailer. Am I jealous? Not really. Big pumpkins tend to be not so good for cooking and baking, and I don't need anywhere near that much pumpkin pie anyway. We're going to need a bigger oven. This is central time.